Talking Podcast of 2023. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and joined. It's a new year, new week, Terry. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, how you doing? I'm well. You know, we haven't talked since last year. All right, it's a bad joke. <laughs> I, I had like five joke. people five people tell me over the weekend, I'll see you next year, you know. You probably won't see me till next year. Oldest dad joke in the book. So, hey, Terry, I just yeah. wanted, at the start of the podcast, I just wanted to say we're uh, praying and pulling for DeMar Hamlin of the yes. Bills after what happened last night. It was just awful. I, I I was trying to think if I've ever seen anything like that in a in an NFL game where somebody's heart stopped like that. And I can't, in terms of a heart stopping, I don't know that I've seen anything like that. And we wish him a, a speedy recovery. And um, he's got a tough, tough road ahead yeah. of him it sounds like but uh, we're all pulling for him and that's one of those things where i am not going to play doctor on this one or whatever the only thing i'll say is it took a long time for them to get to where they needed to get to which was this game was is done and uh let's go from there but in terms of the impact of the hit versus did he have a heart condition does uh, you know that's we'll let the medical people sort all that out um and that's because actually, I was watching the Cavs, and I just kind of flipped over, and I didn't have no clue what was even going on for a little while until they explained it. And I said, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, it's just a terrible situation, and, and, and we wish him all the best yeah. and, and hope, hope things turn around for him. Uh, so, Terry, you mentioned the Cavs game last night, and we probably saw one of the greatest performances in NBA history and, and probably the, the greatest offensive performance in Cavs history. I guess we could talk about that, but um, Donovan Mitchell scored 71 points last night. Franchise record. He led the Cavs back from a big deficit, and they beat the Bulls in overtime uh, last night at the Fieldhouse. He was 22 of 34 from the field, 7 of 15 on three-pointers, 20 of 25 from the free-throw line. He listened to your advice from a week ago and started taking the ball to the rack with authority and that's why he ended up shooting 25 free throws but i just wanted to just your general impressions of last night and and what we saw well it was a very significant as i my column for tomorrow i call it a stressful 71 this was not let's feed donovan mitchell the ball see how many points he could score this was not some strange game at the end of the season where uh, I think one year, I think George Gervin and David Thompson, I forgot the different players were trying to see how many points they could score to win the scoring title. This was a overtime game, uh, a lot on the line in terms of regular season. And Mitchell looking at the situation of no Garland, no Evan Mobley. Some of his other teammates are struggling too out there with him. And I got to run the point and I have to score. And I've got to do it like a man by going to the rim because he had shot 25 free throws. I swear he got hit almost every single time he went to the rim. I mean, he could, he could have been living there. And yeah, I love the way 30 free throws or, or more. Yeah, yeah. I love the way he was shoots free throws. Um, if you watched it, because I've noticed that from when he got here, but that he was, he was there so much. I began taking notes where he goes to the line, puts the ball on his left hip. And he closes his eyes, and he takes a deep breath, and then he dribbles it three times. He slightly spins it and shoots it. Does it the same way every time, but it's almost like he's stopping action. Because players who, um, 
I don't care whether you're in high school or whatever, you're running on high adrenaline up and down the court, everything else. Then when you get to the free throw line, and there's really no other thing that compares to it. I guess maybe a penalty kick and in soccer or something. I don't know, but you know what it um, reminds me of Terry is like that sport biathlon where you're doing cross country skiing and then you have to stop and shoot a gun at yes, a target. Yeah. Like that's the only thing I can think of that compares. Yeah. Cause even when they have the penalty things in hockey, it's more your game. You are moving. Uh, this is just, you just stop and then you're at the line and everybody's looking at you. And also if you've had some problems at the line, um, they will come back to you there. Whereas, yeah, you may have some problems making jump shots, for, but sometimes in the flow of the game, they tell you, don't think, just shoot it. Or almost like what I was talking about Donovan, just take it to the rim. Just go in there. Because then you're not thinking, you're just reacting. Well, there, there's none of that. And so he is on top of what we've seen with this athleticism. He's one of the strongest small players I've ever seen go into the rim. Uh, he makes his free throws. I think he's at 89% this year, 86. And so if you have someone in your family and they're having trouble with the line, maybe you want to just show them a little bit what Donovan does and try it. Slow the world down. It's good advice for all of us, not just for free throws, for everything, I suppose. So, mm-hmm. so Terry, let's talk about the historical perspective of this. If you look at the 70-point club, Donovan Mitchell is now the seventh member of the NBA's 70-point club. Uh, Will Chamberlain, of course, the 100-point game in 1962. We're going to talk about Will Chamberlain in a minute. Um, Kobe Bryant, you know, Wilt did it, what, six six times, six I think. Times. Six yeah. times, yeah. Everybody else on this list is on once except for Wilt. So it's Wilt, Kobe Bryant with 81 in 2006. David Thompson in 1978. David Robinson had 71 points in 1994. That's and the most surprising to me on the list. Absolutely, yeah. You never I think, think about him with that. Yeah, I think he might be... Yeah, he and Wilt are the two big guys on this. Elgin Baylor also had 71. He was kind of a big guy, too, but he was he was more of a inside-out guy, right? All right. Now, here's what he was kind of like. Now, without the good jump shot, um, he, he was built stocky, like 6'5", much like Mitchell. And with the athleticism, and you hard to knock him off his, you know, when he's going to the rim. Uh, what he would do sometimes when there were big guys – around him he would throw it off the backboard go and get it and put it in (laughs) or and i mean he could really jump and so i I got to know i saw some of these players towards the end of their career and others i interviewed when i wrote the book tall tales and elgin was one of the people i interviewed that he said he kind of invented that on the playgrounds i forgot where, where he grew up and he said it always confused everybody and even in the nba because they sort of think you got your double team or whatever, and you just kind of fling it up there high and think I could just go up and go over people. Well, just like it was almost like Donovan at the foul line there, remember? Mm-hmm. He knew he was going to shoot it. And, and see, the thing that was smart about that is you just go busting in there. If they're going to call over the back, fine. They're probably not going to call a thing. So, But you have to be athletic enough to make it work. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, so let me recap this 70-point show again because I kind of botched it there, right? Will Chamberlain, 100 points, and five others. Uh, Kobe Bryant, 81. David Mm -hmm. Thompson, 73. David Robinson, 71. Elgin Baylor, 71. And now Donovan Mitchell, 71. And then behind them in 10th place is Devin Booker and Wilt tied at 70. 
And then you write about this in your column tomorrow, Terry, Michael Jordan with 69 against the Cavs. Um, your column tomorrow, you you start the column out talking about Will Chamberlain and the 100-point game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And, of course, the attendance at that game was a million because <laughs> everybody who was everybody who was, everybody says they were there, right? <laughs> in reality, I forgot what they announced, but I was told it was like 2,500. <laughs> really. So talk about Will Chamberlain and the 100-point game and how he felt about that and, and, and just put some perspective on what it means to have a night like that for someone like I Will Chamberlain. I mentioned to you that um... – I interviewed a bunch of the players for my book, Tall Tales. Tall Tales is written much like loose balls, only it's on the NBA of the 50s and 60s. And it did not have the St. Louis spirits and Marvin Barnes, but it's got a lot of great stories in it. So um, I got a hold. This is the second time in my life I'd interviewed Will. I got a hold of him. He had, a, at that point, he had an interest in a restaurant down in Florida. And, and we had a, a connection between each other. And so, you know, he's like, oh, I only got five, 10 minutes. Well, he talked for two hours on the phone about all kinds of things. And, and I didn't, I had been told by somebody he wasn't wild about the 100 point game. So I waited a while to bring it up. And he goes, That game was a joke. I hate that game. I said, Why? He said, It wasn't a basketball game. It just got in. They wanted me to score all these points and they were throwing me the ball all the time. He goes, It's almost embarrassing. Um, and he just said, I just don't like talking about it. The only thing he said, I said, you were 22 for 30, 28 for 32 at the following. He goes, I like talking about that. That was the only good thing. Because <laughs> remember, he's a career 50% free throw shooter. So it, it was done at the, it was like, he took 66 shots. He was 36 for 66. And it was done at the end of the year, uh, towards the end of the year. And the Knicks were terrible. And the Warriors just wanted something to, I mean, if you're playing games in Hershey, Pennsylvania, to try to stir some fan interest. The NBA was hurting. They would play all kinds of places. And they also thought if Wilt would score 100, because he was starting to pop in these 70-point games, that would get the league some attention. So it was a pure publicity stunt is really what it was. And that's why he's he's down on it and and uh, didn't want to discuss it. He liked to talk about his triple doubles he had in other games with his passing and, and that kind of stuff. Um yeah, and if you just look at his other games, Terry, 78 points in 1961, yeah. 73 points in 1962, twice, three times. Three times in 1962, he scored, uh, let's see, two 73-point <laughs> games and, and one in 1962. So he won 73, 73, 72 in 1962. Uh, it's really amazing. And then 70 points in 1963. So this was just like regular for him. It's really yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was, it was I mean, he averaged like 50 in one of those seasons. Uh, played just about every minute of every game. It was funny when I went in to do that project, uh, Tall Tales, the impression was that kind of uh, Will Chamberlain, the brooding giant, and Bill Russell was this great guy. Then I started interviewing people. And I had a couple of uh, things with Bill Russell where he was not exactly very friendly. And what I found out, the Celtics all think Russell's a great guy. Although if you were a rookie on the Celtics, he never called you by your first name until your second year. It was, hey, you, hey, kid, or maybe once in a while, what school you went to. Will Chamberlain, meanwhile, may be hated by the Celtics, but is beloved by much of the NBA. Will would often take the rookies out. He would buy them clothes. He would buy them food. Now, you also had to listen to Will and understand that, remember, Will, the 10,000 woman line or whatever it was in his value. It's like... 
he goes, Terry, you got a, I forget, several players told me, he's like, we'll like to fish. So if you said, man, I went out and I caught 12 trout. Oh, no, no. I, I went out one time and we were up there on this Fox River and I got me 18 trout. So whatever you got, he got more, but he would tell it in such an engaging way and funny, just like how he was with me about that. That's a joke. I don't want to talk about the, that game or whatever. I said, but you were 28 at 32 at the foul. He goes, now I want to talk about that because <laughs> I could make the flip. They said I couldn't make free throws, but in the game I needed 100 points, I made 28 free throws. And he was just, just so engaging. And to carry that further, so I'm a young uh, writer, first year full-time in Greensboro. This is in 1977. Wilt comes to Greensboro. At that time, he's touring with a pro volleyball team. So they sent me out to the airport to interview Wilt about this thing. So I talked to him. He said, look, kid, I'm going to go. I'm staying at the Holiday Inn. He goes, go down. Meet me there. I had some limo or something taking him. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get blown off. So I go down there and I said, just call my room. And I well, that'll never work. Even at Young Kid work. But it's like somebody, I guess he left word at the at the desk. Is somebody there? He called, sent me up to the room, sat there for 45 minutes. He ordered, he was on a big health kick diet of this cheese and fruit and all that. Ordered that and was just talking to me about, you know, playing ball and pro volleyball. And so my two encounters with Will, where he really didn't know me, we didn't have, we had zero connection in Greensboro. And very little after that were fabulous, and they matched many of the others uh, people there that uh, that really liked him. Huh, that's something. So um, I, I had a question I wanted to ask you, Terry, before we started talking today about have you ever seen anything like Donovan Mitchell's game last night? And I know when I was reading your column for tomorrow, mm-hmm. you mentioned the March twenty eighth, nineteen ninety game when Michael Jordan was in town to play the Cavs and that one also went into overtime and that you said and you write write this in your column but that that game kind of gave you a little bit of a feeling you were actually at that game you covered that mm-hmm. one. yeah I did and it was a very intense game you know same two teams Cavs and Bulls uh like the other night and the Cavs have been just tormented already then by Jordan. He had already made the shot in 89. He had had these big games against the Cavs, 40-point games, 50-point games. And it, he scored them in much the same way that Donovan did, although they did, he didn't make as many three-pointers. But just this relentless going to the rim and putting pressure on people and the Cavs trying to, to uh, you know, knock him off, to get him to the foul line, but he's making free throws. And I remember afterwards, uh, it's like he scored 69. It felt like 100. It just seemed like he just so dominated that. In fact, nobody else, I think Horace Grant at 16 points. Scotty Pippen had one of his games where he didn't show up. I mean, he was there like at nine points. And they won it over time. Mark, like the Rosen, DeRozan, DeMar DeRozan the other night at 40-some points. Yeah, nobody noticed that Mark Price had 32 points in that game. Craig Elo, who was covering Jordan, had 26. It was like afterwards, you know, the fans are disappointed at the Richfield Coliseum. But everybody walked out go, we just saw greatness. Yeah, and like Mitchell's game, and you've been writing about this, not only did Jordan score all those points, but he also had, what, 18 rebounds and six mm-hmm. assists. And, yeah. Um, you know, it was a well-rounded game, just like Donovan Mitchell's last night. 
And what what Jordan would do in that game and many others is Mark Price had a lot of big games against the Bulls. But in the fourth quarter later on, they would switch uh, Jordan on to take Mark Price because they wanted to do it. And so uh, that was another thing he would do, his defense. And I thought Donovan's defense in that game was, was decent, better than it's been. That's the one thing about Donovan. I think you look at him and keep thinking he can be better defensively than he is. But, man, the rest of the game and just his attitude, uh, you could tell how he's – he has risen to the occasion in these games where Garland's not played. Yeah. So all right, I don't want to spend the whole podcast about, talking yeah. about Donovan Mitchell, Terry, but I did think this was an interesting tidbit in Chris Fedor's story, our colleague who covers the Cavs. He had this today about – Brad Doherty was trying to get Donovan Mitchell fired up and, and help him break out of his slump because he's had four kind of subpar games. And Brad Doherty, was it was kind of like uh, a, a corner man in boxing, like, you're the best, you're the best. Yeah. But also he gave him a tip. He said he saw a flaw in Donovan Mitchell's shot mechanics and mentioned mm-hmm. that to him. Uh, you, you forget a lot of times these guys, they're not robots, right? Like they – they have good days and bad days. And, yep. and Mitchell said he was playing video games with some guys yesterday, including Kyrie Irving. And they played so long. He didn't get his pregame nap in, but like there's routines and rituals and, mm-hmm. and these guys, like they have ups and downs just like, just like everybody else. But I thought it was interesting that he was getting some help, motivational help from some people around the team. And that, and that Brad Doherty was able to pick up on a, on a shot mechanic thing, just watching from the sideline, you know, like, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And a couple of factors. Number one is that he was willing to listen to Doherty and then mentioned it in the press conference. Number two, Brad Doherty, when he was 16 years old out of black mountain, North Carolina, uh, was recruited by Dean Smith and played four years at Carolina. Uh, so he, you know, was clearly tutored by the best that back in the day when they played four years and those things and always a very smart player, Brad, that was, if you saw him, he was kind of a finesse center with a lot of pick and rolls with uh, Mark Price and was around Price is one of the greatest shooters ever. And so I'm just was really happy to hear, and that says something great about Donovan, that he listens to a guy like that. Because, you know, right now, if you're Donovan Mitchell, I mean, that could be like talking about, you know, if I were to bring up, well, some of the players we just mentioned, Elgin Baylor or some of those other guys way in the distant past, very small dots in the rearview mirror of life um, that you just heard about. So that was that was cool, too. But Doherty, Doherty was extremely smart. And the four years with uh, – uh, with Dean Smith were critical to him. I remember interviewing Dean Smith and we're up in his office and he had these pictures all on the wall. And by the way, nobody had a bigger picture it was almost all looked like those yearbook shots that you see, you know, there were, they're all just mug shots and each class and each things were on his wall. And we were just kind of walking. This had turned out Dean Smith had one more year to coach. He was going to resign. And, and Dean had read a couple of my books and, um, he remembered me when I was a young writer mentioned being in Greensboro and I would be sent out to games. He, he was very media savvy. So we get into Doherty's picture and he looked like he was about 12 years old in that picture. And he goes, he always called him Bradley. Oh, Bradley. <laughs> I thought I was going to lose him to 
Lefty Brazil, because nobody was better recruiting mama than Lefty Brazil. But I got a Bradley's daddy and convinced him that you don't want to go to Maryland. You want to go play to the, be a Tar Heel. And then he said, I brought out all, he had the whole folder and all those guys are lawyers and doctors and all this, which is, you know, very impressive. And uh, that's what he did. And he said, Bradley was a smart player at 16 and he was, he goes, he was easy to coach. Great stuff, Terry. The uh, If you get a chance, check out cleveland.com slash Cavs today. Uh, Robbie Fenbers, uh, one of our correspondents who was at the game last night, did a buy-the-numbers breakdown of Donovan That's Mitchell's That's really night. good. It's yeah, there's really a lot of good. really good stuff in there. But I did want to talk about one number, and we've been discussing this on the podcast, Terry, Donovan Mitchell's minutes. Yeah. And the only kind of negative number from last night was that he played 49 minutes and 48 mm-hmm. seconds in that game last night. And the Cavs are coming back on Wednesday night. They have a day off today on Tuesday playing Wednesday night against Phoenix. How do you approach Donovan Mitchell's minutes tomorrow night if you're J.B. Bickerstaff in terms of the Cavs might be shorthanded again without Garland and Mobley? I, I haven't seen an update on that yet, but how do you – kind of manage, all right, we want to win this game, but we also don't want him playing 44 minutes. Uh, on no, Wednesday. you don't what do What would that. you do? You, just, you simply don't. In fact, today they should just have him in the trainer's room the whole time in the ice tub or whatever he does to make sure his body recuperates. By the way, Jordan also played 50 minutes in that game, that overtime game. That was another similarity. Um, yes, I would be very careful with him. And if you look at his career, he misses 10 to 12 games a year uh, on different things. and if you've got to play Neto in the backcourt more with Levert or whatever, you just do it. And if you get, you happen to get beat, you get beat because the last thing you want to do is have him uh, strain a hamstring or one of those things on top of Garland. Who's you, you never know how long he's going to be out. It's a thumb injury. I believe how long he's going to be out. And the mobile thing kind of surprised me. That sort of came out of nowhere that he had an ankle problem. So, you just have to watch it and and make sure that you don't you don't wear the guy out. All right, Terry. Well, the game last night it, it had some importance in the standings. The Cavs are moved into a twenty twenty four and fourteen record, and they're in a virtual tie with the Bucks at the top of the Central Division. And actually, the Cavs are only two and a half games behind the Celtics in mm-hmm. the race for the top seed in the Eastern Conference. The Cavs are number four right now. And a big stretch coming up, a big road trip. The Cavs are home against Phoenix on Wednesday, and then they go on a five-game trip. It's Friday at Denver, Sunday at Phoenix, next Tuesday the 10th at Utah, next Thursday the 12th at Portland, and then next Saturday the 14th at Minnesota. So a lot of basketball to be played, and I think you're right about managing his minutes. And not only his, David, Kevin Love. Watch this. They're starting him because they came up with they, they – they were almost beside themselves. How can they keep Kevin Love healthy? This goes back a couple of years. And so their, their analytics people sat down with their medical people, and they cooked up this plan with JB to come off the bench and keep him between 20 and 24 minutes. And it worked last year. They finally got him through the season healthy. And that had been the plan up until now. Now with Mobley out, he's started a couple games. But this – this is just going to be one of those things. You These guys, you don't want to lose them in January. Yeah, I was just looking to see how many minutes Kevin Love played last night, and it was 37. 37. Yep, 37. Yeah, I, think so. the, I think the other night it was pretty high, too. I think it was in the 30s. 
Um, man, he's still good too, Kevin Love. He's so smart out there. And defensive rebounding, he's tremendous. Um, I was so wrong about Love. I thought he was done two years ago, that he wasn't interested. And I would have been willing to buy him out. And boy, would I have been wrong on that one. That whole team is just having a lot of fun. They really yeah. are, and it's. I think the fans are into it. And the MVP chance last night. It's a. It's a. It's just a good place to play basketball. It's a good. It's a really good basketball town. I think the players really appreciate the energy they get from the fans. So, all right, Terry, let's take a break here. We will come back. We we're going to talk about the Browns. I want to ask you: Do you think that Martin Emerson is the best cornerback on the Browns? So ponder that during the break. We've also got some good Hey Terry questions this week. We're going to talk about your faith column. And we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, the Browns are 7-9, and nine, heading into their last mm-hmm. regular season game at Pittsburgh. And you wrote a column this week about how hard it's been for you to kind of get a handle on this team. It, 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 you see things that look so discouraging if you're a Browns fan, and then you see things that are so encouraging. And you kind of wrote about just that tug of war that's happening in your mind about this team. Uh, talk about what it's been like to – kind of assemble what this Browns team has been all about for you. I mean, me, one of the really surprising stats is after they beat, uh, uh, after they won in Washington, they've won four of their last six games. It sure didn't feel like it to me. And I don't think it's felt like that to a lot of other people. Uh, you know, the defense I'm still concerned about, but I have to give them credit. They've played very well in the last, probably that six game span there, really. But I, you know, so you thought in the beginning of the year they wouldn't score enough points. They did score enough points. And they went four and seven with Jacoby. And then you think, well, at the end, the defense is going to be terrible because it was terrible earlier in the year. And now it's not. And then on top of it, it was like there was one guy named Deshaun Watson on the field in the first half. It looked like he was like one of the quarterbacks from the old days of the Browns. And then this other guy named Deshaun Watson comes out. And he's, like, decisive and hitting all these open receivers. And you're going, look at that. That's, I guess, the guy. Yeah, that game Sunday was like a microcosm of the whole season. It's yeah. like the first half was like, wait a minute. It's supposed to be better than this, and it's not happening. And then the right. second and half happened. Yeah, the 96-yard, like, oh. 21-play drive. Remember that? Washington <laughs> did at the end of the half. Yeah, it's like, all right, you're in the second half. It's like, all right, this is what it's supposed to look like. <laughs> What, yeah. what happened in the first half? So um, what did you think of Deshaun Watson? Terry, he was 9 of 18 for 169 yards and the three touchdowns. His passer rating was 122.5. Uh, we're seeing progress every week, right? I would say, I mean, it, it, but it's not linear at all. It's just a lot of ups and downs. It's, it's kind of like a strange stock that people can't decide whether it's really worth buying or not. Of course, the Browns are all in. Um I was encouraged to see that because I was talking to a couple other writers at halftime and you start getting into, man, what if this is it? Because remember, this is 62 degrees, five mile an hour wind, sunshine, beautiful. This is like September in Cleveland, this game was. And Washington, I mean, they're okay, but they're not great. And their secondary was all banged up. And he was like running around. I don't know what he was doing. He threw the ball to Jack Conklin. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. And then the second half, he comes out and Bang, Amari Cooper, DPJ, all these guys, and he's right on the money with it. And some of those are difficult throws down to the sidelines. And, of course, I do think somebody reminded him that 
wearing an orange helmet is Amari Cooper. He's one of the best route runners in the NFL. You, you may want to throw the ball to him more than once, which he did in the first half. Well, they did in the second. So, so yep. Terry, it's my weekly question. You you came out around midseason and said that after this year, it would be time to move on from Joe Woods and, and find a new defensive coordinator. Uh, nothing's changed in your mind based on what you saw last Sunday. No. No, I'm pretty much – I want to see a new defensive coordinator. Um, you could argue the last two years that they were bad early and much better late in the season. The problem with being bad early is it buries you for late in the season. I, and also, if we're going to say, correctly so, that in some of these games the offense was really hindered by the bad weather, well, then you have to also say the defense is helped by the bad weather. And I will give Joe a lot of credit because he's got linebackers playing. I don't know who they are. They're just guys off the street. And he's finding a way to um, uh, make that work. But, I, you know, if they could get a defensive coordinator in here who's, who's kind of big time and maybe could just do something to make this better, um, that's what they need to do. Yeah, and you're seeing some real creative touches late in the season here, like Miles Garrett lining up over center on Sunday, mm-hmm. way, way more than I think he did in any other game. Yeah, and yeah, I was like, sitting there and thought, you brought, we, we said, well, where's this been all year? I mean, once in a while, he would move him or Clowney, but where is, it's almost like he feels freedom to try this stuff because he may not be back. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you know, the life of Miles Garrett every week is lining up at the end, try, beating, yeah. a, beating the offensive tackle in front of you, and whatever the tight, tight end, end running back or whoever yeah. they're going to send at you to chip. So, like, why not change that up? Or, you're right, earlier in the season, and give Miles Garrett some different matchups to look at. It just, it seems like you're right, Terry. Why, why did it take so long? And and other, I mean, David, I'm going to really defer to you on some of this, especially line play on that. But if they're running, they're bashing the middle of my line. You don't like my tackles. Wouldn't putting Garrett or somebody else there in the middle once in a while help that? Well, and Clowney too. And sometimes they do, but like just give a different look every once in a while. And uh, boy, this whole season, Terry, you have to wonder like, well, what if the Browns had done this early in the Mm -hmm. season? What if they'd done that? And what if they hadn't blown the Jets game? And they, they just, there was more there for them. This season, and the Charger definitely. game was awful too. That was that was blown coverage day. Um, those two right there, and I mean, in hanging over the team was the whole Watson suspension, and he's going to come back, and what is that going to mean for everybody? But in a lot of ways, Jacoby, you know, negated that because he played so well, and they were tenth in scoring when Jacoby left. After eleven games, they ranked tenth in the NFL in scoring. And that should have been enough, instead of being four and seven, to be minimum six and five, and I would argue seven and four. But the rest of the units weren't weren't there. So no, I mean they lost to the Jets, giving up thirty, scoring thirty. They lost to San, uh, I always say San Diego, but they lost to the Chargers, giving up. Um, they scored twenty eight. I think it was thirty to twenty eight. So there's two games right there where you scored more than enough to win. I'll tell you the other interesting stat on Jacoby was that of the nine, 11, nine, nine out of the 11 games he played, they scored at least 20 points. Remember, the NFL is not scoring big numbers like it used to because it, they were averaging 24 points. They were 10th in the league in scoring per game. All right, Terry. So um, I, I, 
we're getting to the point of the season where it's time to evaluate the roster, evaluate the job mm-hmm. that Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski did. And uh, Andrew Barry's going to have to answer some questions after the season about why the defensive interior line was such a failure this season. Um, and the draft picks didn't contribute as much as they wanted. The free agents they signed didn't contribute as much as they wanted. But I want to talk about someone that Andrew Barry has hit on. And that mm-hmm. is cornerback Martin Emerson Jr. I don't think I don't think there's much of an argument. This guy is the best cornerback on the Browns roster. From if, if you look every week at the eye test, that's what it tells you. And then if you look at the data, uh, Pro Football Focus, you see that as, as well. He's he's ranked according to PFF as the 25th best cornerback in the NFL this season with a 72.6 grade. Greg Newsom is 42nd in the league at 67.7. And then Denzel Ward, who by far has the biggest contract, he's one of the highest paid defensive backs in the NFL, is ranked 89th at 56.8 and having a disappointing season by all accounts. Uh, what have you thought of Martin Emerson? You think he's the best cornerback? Is, is that what your eyes are telling you? Well, if you were com- let's compare him and Denzel. And Denzel's had some really good games, but then some atrocious games. Whereas... I know there were a couple of very, very good games by Emerson. I can't think of maybe there might have been one game. I forgot Burrow or somebody was working him over, but that was about it. You don't have these games go, man, that guy's having a nightmare out there. And for a rookie who's been covering good receivers and out there a lot, that is a, um, that's a real testament. I think Newsom can still be pretty good too. I really do. They do need to find somebody who's better at covering slot receivers. I know that that's sometimes it's fallen to Newsom, but there really are, I think that that's a, that's a missing piece for them in the secondary. Uh, I do want to say this about Joe Woods and, and, you know, right now, you know, his backers, his people are supporting him say, well, yeah, they second with all these linebackers and they're light in this. Joe was, was perhaps the biggest advocate in the building for JOK. You know, he really wanted him, who's a white linebacker in that. So uh, he he had his – remember, he wanted the three safeties and two linebackers. That was his idea. He liked that that scheme. And it came out of some of the San Francisco thing. They're still playing these, this kind of weird coverage sometimes. It's called the quarters where they divide the field up in the quarters. And this guy passes the, the – this back passes the receiver off to that back. And it seems like – in between the passing is when exactly the guy's wide open and the quarterback throws in there. So maybe it's just – I like simplification. And, yeah, you want to have a receiver – I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, a safety deep to help your receivers. But put your guys – put them on those receivers. Make them accountable. Yeah, and Terry, I was just looking at Denzel Ward's grades here. You've – You've seen this too. There, there have been times this season where some of the Browns' defensive backs, the safeties and the corners, show very little interest in tackling against yeah. the run or if someone's running after the catch. And Denzel Ward's run grade, according to PFF, is 45.6. And he and John Johnson, I've seen many plays this season where they are not sticking their nose in to make a tackle. Well, that's a huge and, disappointment too on Johnson because I thought that was what he was supposed to be able to do because you don't see him as like – one of these great free safeties that pick the ball, pick the pick these passes off, but yet he's not this hard hitting safety either. Um, I wonder on Denzel. He's had a lot of concussions, David. I don't know how many. At least and, three, right? Yeah, at least three. Yes. Over the, and 
are they telling him just be careful how you tackle and that kind of thing? It could be. It could be. And and like you said, Terry, there's been a lot of variables here. The defensive line depth, the injuries at linebacker. It's it, mm-hmm. it's hard to pin the blame on one person in particular. I think everybody's going to take some of it. And, in this and let's face it, Miles didn't help the situation by turning over his car. He missed a game and, and the shoulder was bothering a couple others. But I really, I get, I mean, I still get these emails. And, well, yeah, trade Miles Garrett. You don't get better by trading Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett is not this awful guy. And Miles Garrett has played hurt a lot. You know, he, he says cryptic things and all this kind of stuff. But it goes back to what Chris Palmer told me a long time ago in his first year, how to evaluate your team. And I, for example, he would say if you were um, the offensive coordinator facing the Browns defense, and I'll ask you, David, you're the offensive coordinator. All right, you're um, – uh, I don't even know the offense coordinator's name for the the Steelers. Uh, they have a, they had a newer one this year. You're that guy. You're facing the Browns. Who worries you on defense? What players? Uh, Miles Garrett. Okay. Anybody else? Mm, maybe Clowney if he's healthy. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, I'm so, at Canada. The uh, Steelers' offensive coordinator. That's Those right. are the two guys. <laughs> okay. And so, well, I'm not trading one of those two guys. Now, Clowney's weird because he's always on a one-year contract, sort of on his own program. And with Clowney, you always say he's pretty good, but you know there's more there. Nonetheless, you're thinking, all right, I got to get two guys on Miles Garrett. Well, and it's I remember um, I was covering I was I was covering and kind of editor back in during the Jordan era Bulls the first run mm-hmm. and when Horace Grant left people in Chicago were up in arms about it. how can you let Horace Grant leave you know look what he does for the team and all I thought back then was like you can find another Horace Grant right mm-hmm. and they did they found Dennis Rodman and then they they yeah. found other guys they could plug in like you don't find another Miles Garrett like. <laughs> There is no, no other Miles Garrett. There is only one of him, and there's only one guy built like him, and one guy able to do the things that he does. And, and so and, you, and keep even, that. Maybe, you keep that. As yeah, long maybe as you, you can. think he should be T.J. Watt or whatever, but he's as close as you're going to get to him. Absolutely. And I just think, by the way, these guys mature as they grow older, uh, and I think Miles does want to win. And to Miles's credit, you know, they did not have a hard time getting him to sign that extension. I mean, he signed for a lot of money, but he signed for a lot of money knowing within, um, I think, a month that he was going to go from, like, the highest-paid defensive lineman to, like, the third because I think Bosa came after him and somebody else was coming after that. He went first, in other words, where a lot of agents and a lot of part- – now, let me see what those guys get so I could get more. Now, that's one of those stuff, you know, the game behind the game behind the game. And I always thought that was, was nice about Miles because this guy came here – and where they go? They 0-16 his first year. And then he's got, you know, few getting fired. And this is 2018. And Greg Williams comes in. And then what happens after that? He's got Freddie Kitchens. I mean, it's just – then he signs the extension. So he, it's not exactly like he had a great run for the first three years before signing the extension. Well, and just another example, Terry, of why 2023 is a pivotal year for this franchise, mm-hmm. and they've got to get got, they've got to get it done. I mean, the window is open, and it's not going to be open long, so they got to move. Um, 
So, all right, Terry, let's get moving here on to your faith and you column for this week. Really interesting take, Terry. You write about your family's purple car that your dad bought when, <laughs> when you were a kid and just the process of decision making. And why don't you discuss your faith in you column, which will be on Cleveland.com Saturday and in Sunday's Plain Dealer. First of all, I want to thank, I must have got 70 emails of people with their Christmas memories because I'd written a faith column for Christmas weekend about this kind of the ethnic Christmas and all that. And then I put on the bottom a little note, if you have some memories, email them here. And it was like impossible to pick out all the ones I'd love to use. But in the process of reading those, it just sort of flashed back into my mind the day our little Parma ranch house, Parma, my father on Westminster Drive rolls into the driveway in this purple Chrysler 300. And he goes in the house says, um, hey, I got a new car, which surprised my mother. So, of course, I'm not surprised on that. They, they, they were not good at discussing things. So their marriage kind of was like the Brown secondary. There are a lot of blown coverages there on <laughs> who was doing what. Uh, my mother spending, my father buying a car. So we go out there. And it's this purple beast in the driveway. Because remember, everything, that they're small. I mean, the driveways are small. The houses are small. And, well, you know, what do you think? And my mom goes, it's purple. You know, like, yeah, but I got a great deal on it. I got a great trade-in. And she said something like, I bet. Who would want it? <laughs> and then he opens it. And the interior is white. But to protect the white interior, he bought these plastic seat covers, which we then learn when it gets hot, what happens? Those things like stick to your body. It was awful. So what does this have to do with faith? How many times do we think we get a really good deal on something? I, I doubt when my father walked into that Chrysler dealership, because he usually had smaller Dodges. I think he wanted to upgrade or he got talked into it. That thing was probably sitting there for months, and that's why I got a good deal on it because nobody else wanted a purple car with white interior. And uh, it didn't last very long. It got rid of it. But I was just thinking how oftentimes we we go into things. We don't get prayed up. We don't really talk to anyone else. And next thing that we know, we got our version of a purple Chrysler in our life. Yeah, and like you wrote, you wrote Terry, we're, we're, you're dealing with people a lot of times yeah. in life situations, not a car. And and the decision you make impacts the people around you instead of just uh, plastic on seats or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And you can't cover it up. That's what I wrote too. It's like, it's still, you put plastic seats on it, but it's still a white interior with a purple car. I mean, now maybe there's somebody out there who think this is exactly what I'm going to go buy. Uh, God bless you. But if you're married, I would consult with my spouse first. <laughs> All right. We got some good Hey Terry questions. You ready? Yes, I am. Let's do it. All right. This one, we've had some really far-flung listeners sending questions. This is great. We've had two from Africa. And today, Terry, we have a question from Chris Lobdell. Hope I said your last name right, Chris, from St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. Wow. And he says, hey, Terry, I would like to see the NFL change the way it stats interceptions. I don't think it's fair that an intercepted pass that is tipped or deflected off of a receiver counts against the quarterback. I think it should count against the receiver. What are your thoughts? And he also says, P.S., you should check out the hiking trails on St. John. So he's got a hiking recommendation for you. I bet they are. Um, I was thinking about that. In general, I like the idea, although I think you would have to put a little bit of um, thought into it because sometimes 
the pass is way high. And the guy jumps up and it goes off his fingertips to somebody else. It's not like it was a great thrown ball. But most of what we do see, like uh, the other day, we see balls just right in the middle of a guy's chest, bounces off and gets picked off and runs the other way. So you could easily invent another category, just interceptions and deflections. Yeah, I'd be for that. I mean, in, in baseball, if you are a pitcher and you leave guys on base and they score, like the, the those don't go on the reliever's ERA, like they go on yours. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like that, right? Like who should be responsible for the interception? Mm-hmm. There's got to be a way to account for that. I think it's a good idea. At least idea. If nothing else, if you look at that, you go, man, he had 12 interceptions, but he had four deflections? Really? You know. Yeah, it's like um, who was the Browns receiver uh, Coleman from a few years ago? Oh my, Corey Coleman. Yeah, the Corey Coleman uh, stat should be incorporated. That's what this would could be called. So, oh lord, um, that guy. Yeah, yeah. First round pick, traded down twice to take Corey Coleman. I once made a list of all the players that they actually did get when they traded down twice, and Corey Coleman wasn't even the worst. I mean, it was it, they they traded themselves into oblivion with that because remember they went from number two I think to like number eight or nine and then down to whatever that was seventeen or something. Yeah, ah, was, the Browns memories. Yep, not much there when you put that list together. I remember reading that. So yeah, all right. This one's from closer to Cleveland. This one's from Glenn Tapp from Bedford Heights, and he says, "Hey Terry, my question is: Will the new baseball season?" have the runner at second base in extra innings. To me, that is a little league rule, and I hope it will be eliminated this season. Please let me know. I know the rest, like the rest of the changes, none of my friends know the answer to this either. <laughs> okay. So. Did you do ahead. the research on, is it returning, I believe? Oh, yeah, it's coming back. Yeah. I Yeah, and I think baseball likes this because it ends the games faster. And it doesn't wear out a, a pitching staff and, and ruin a whole week for a pitching staff. Um, so I haven't seen anything that they're changing. This wasn't part of the new rules. I mean, the new rules involve the bigger bases, bigger bases and, and yeah. the uh, the pitch clock and all that stuff, which is going to be around here now in 2023. But nothing on the second base rule that I saw. Well, I did not think I would like it. And I remember about six weeks into the season, the first year they used it, um, I was – talking to Tom Hamilton and they had just played a game like that. And I said, Tom, what do you think of that second base rule? I'm just curious. He goes, I thought I wouldn't like it. I do. And because it brings immediate tension to a game that were, I mean, it was great. Remember that I think it was 15 innings or the guardians beat the Tampa Bay in the playoffs, Oscar, the Oscar Gonzalez game. But it seemed that, that really dragged on and on. And so I'm I'm all for it. I didn't think I would. I just want to make sure that second base rule extra innings, you know, see that it's still in uh, in place. So I believe it is. So um, that's, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was in last do. year. And when the new rule yeah. changes came out, there was nothing in there about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm right. assuming it's just carrying on. But I, it's, it's surprising to me that people don't like it now that they've seen it because baseball fans, are, you know, baseball is known as the thinking person's game. And, mm-hmm. and there's a whole interesting set of strategies that go into that second base. Yeah, thing, it is. Extra innings. Do you sacrifice? I mean, what, do you, where do you right. play the infield? You know, all that stuff is really right up baseball fans alley. And I'm surprised yeah. when they don't like it. Yeah. One of the first things that, um, uh, 
changed is people would bunt early on to get that guy to third and score, but then they discovered the other team easily could score a run too. And they were going, so that, then it became almost like going for two in football, play for two. So that changed, I remember, after the first couple of months. And, um, but I like it. Yeah, and it looks like it'll be back this year. So uh, thanks for that question. Hey, if you want to send us a question for next week's podcast, you can email us at sports at cleveland.com and just put, hey, Terry or Terry's talking into the subject line and we'll, we'll try and get it onto next week's podcast. So, all right, Terry, we have come to the part of the podcast where if you have a book recommendation, as you've been doing the last few weeks here, is there anything you want to throw out? And if I not, I've got re- one. Please, why don't you do it? Take oh, the okay. pressure off. Well, I got, uh, my daughter got me Friday Night Lights by Buzz Bissinger ah. for Christmas, one of the great all-time sports books. Mm-hmm. And I was telling my daughter, uh, Buzz Bissinger actually has a new book out that he's going around promoting right now. And it's about a football game that was played in Hawaii during World War II between a bunch of uh, U.S. servicemen who were like college and NFL players. And, and it, it sounds like a fascinating book because it's about, it was like the last moment of innocence is the way he frames it before Pearl Harbor happened, like soon after that. And uh, he just writes about that day and, and the guys who were playing in the game and kind of what it meant. Uh, I think it's in, called in the Mosquito the Bowl scheme. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's the name of it. Thanks, yeah. Jerry. I yeah, I read the review on that. Yeah. So um, I'm going to check and try and check that one out too this year. So anyway, I had an I had an uncle at Pearl Harbor, and so I remember I was really young. And it's one of the family gatherings, and so I asked him about it, and he said we couldn't believe it was happening. Like you talked about the moment of innocence. That's what struck this because we're coming out of church and heading over to the mess hall for breakfast, and you heard sirens, and they thought it was just a drill. And then they heard, think, bombs dropping. I said, what did you do? He goes, at first we all hid under the tables until they could really find out. He goes, then they came and, and kind of got us together. And then he wouldn't talk about anything else about it. But they just didn't believe it was happening. Yeah, and that's something I think Tom Brokaw wrote about this a lot in his uh, yeah. The Greatest Generation, about how a lot of people who went through World War II did not want to talk about it. When no, they got they back, don't. there was so many things they saw and memories they did not want to relive. And, uh, and I'm not and surprised I think it, to hear him kind of keep that story no, short. And I'm grateful, too, that as time has passed, because I know some veterans that have been in Iraq and Vietnam, especially, uh, that they are opening up some about that. Because um, I did even a lot of reading about the Civil War, and, that, and there was a lot of post-stress syndrome back then. They didn't know what it was. The, the, you know, the boy just been shell-shocked. I mean, that was all they would say. But he really needed, you know, somebody to talk to and and get together with other guys. Yeah, it's amazing that they went through that without the support that is uh, available now. It's really something. So, all right, Terry, um, anything else you want to get into here? Any any appearances coming up that are? No, no, nothing, nothing yet. Cool. Well, if you want to check out Terry's books, he mentioned some of them during today's podcast. You can go to terrypluto.com and find those there. And also our weekly pitch, if you want to subscribe to cleveland.com, you can, the easiest way to do it is go to cleveland.com slash Browns and just click on the blue banner at the top. You'll get all the cool stuff. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.